The year is 1197 and the long night has begun. When darkness falls, monsters walk the streets and alleys of the cities, congregating to plot and scheme. Fearing fire, the cross, and the lupines of the wild, the elder Cainites nonetheless seek to guide and control human civilization through centuries-old plots, while the younger vampires scrabble for power, influence, and prestige. Welcome to the world of Dark Ages. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to episode 24, sorry, episode 25 of the World of Dark Ages podcast. My name is Jacob. And I'm Peter. Now, if people think my voice sounds a little different, then it's because I have a cold and I've been coughing for the last four days. Um, but how are you doing, Peter? Uh, I'm doing pretty fine, actually. The The weather is a bit inconsistent, but I'm, I'm now in the middle of my vacation, so... I've been enjoying basically doing nothing. I've uh, been taking some walks, being outside, uh, and yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, awesome. Um, <clears throat> and no, uh, in uh, less than a week's time, uh, hopefully, you and I get to hang out because you're coming down here to visit. Exactly. So that's going to be fun, and hopefully the weather will be good. Well, it's, uh, if I recall correctly, it's a tradition that when you come to Denmark, the weather's good, right? Well, at least to Copenhagen. There's been a few times when I've been in other parts of Denmark when it's been raining, but then when I actually get to, to Copenhagen, the, the, the rain has stopped. So we'll, we'll see if that still holds on. Fingers crossed. So yeah. the book we're looking at today is the mini-campaign Bitter Crusade, written by Zach Bush, James Malachewski, and Joshua Mosquera Ashheim, and developed by Philip Arboul. <clears throat> I've actually played this campaign, but I don't remember much about it, other than I played a 13th generation Giovanni Cappadocian with absolutely no combat abilities and a large ghoul bodyguard who would handle that for him. <clears throat> I had a little talk with, uh, with my wife, and she's fairly certain that she played a Ventrue Knight who'd sunk all her initial four dots into Fortitude and also wore heavy armor, so basically he was, he was invulnerable. And I think our friend Mikkel might have played a La Sombra, who chose to face the sun at the end of the campaign. But uh, that, that's about all I remember. Um, anyways, as always, we take a look at the art, starting with the cover. Apart from the oversized head of the axe that the Crusader's holding, I really, really like this cover. It has a nice composition, and it really gives you an idea of what the Chronicle is all about. So, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm happy about it. Yeah, I I agree. Uh, it's uh, it's quite an interesting uh, um, picture actually, and and it's uh, it, it depicts a, a crusader knight holding a huge axe. Um, I I would say that that the uh, decorative uh, decorative hole in the axe head should be further out uh, yeah. towards the the edge of the blade, but um, except for that, it's it's really good, and he, he wears. Uh, proper armor, and he's he's burning not only uh, a bunch of uh, religious icons, but also what I assume to be a vampire and a corpse that has been chained to uh, to a stake, which is not actually not uncommon, uh, or, or rather the the defilement of of corpses is something that has quite a long tradition in in many parts of the world. We have examples of. Uh, dead kings and I think at least one pope that has been uh, exhumed 
a few years after the death, their deaths by their uh, enemies and uh, put on show trials and kind yeah. of uh, been declared uh, heretics or, or guilty of some crime and, and then they've been their dead body has been punished again so uh yeah it it makes a lot of sense and it's it's very cool and i i'm just assuming that those flames are going to spread to the city in the background and and consume all of it yeah and you have this guy who's wearing what looks like a templar's tabard but could just as easily just be a regular crusader knight's tabard uh you know the cross on it and like like you said he's burning religious artifacts you have this icon of what i assume to be the virgin mary so it it neatly sets up what's going on here that you have these christian crusaders but they are they are destroying religious art uh the interior art <clears throat> is really up and down uh, we have some great pictures uh, and we have some pictures that are made to look either like woodcuts or effigies and i think that's really cool and and appropriate for for the time period. However, the art style in Chapter 2 is pretty weird and looks more like old-school Warhammer art depicting various chaos creatures and so stuff like that. So that wasn't really for me. Uh, the weapons, armor, and shield of the Crusader on page 4 are spot-on. Uh, but other than that, we don't get much in the way of weapons and armor, which is interesting seeing as this is a book about uh, a crusade. Uh, most of the character portraits in Chapter 4 look pretty good and are not just like 80s goth club goers. Mm -hmm. uh, finally, we have some maps, and I know you're a big fan of, of having maps. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I, I really like those maps. Uh, they, uh, again, they, they do what what you need them to do. They're, they kind of show where show you where things are, uh, and they're not overly detailed, so you can uh, so so you don't have to argue like like yeah we we run ran down this alley in Venice, so we should be yeah. end, ending up here. Um, and and but but they're still detailed enough, and they show you where things are uh, in relation to each other. Um, I'm I'm just gonna point out a few things that you mentioned on on page four of the. Uh, it, it shows uh, a, a fleet of um, of crusaders, uh, and one of the crusaders is is standing uh, on raised portion of the deck of the ship. Uh, and and what I really like is that. Uh, that guy is is actually really accurate for the time period and uh, for example he he has a matching sword and dagger that was quite common uh, for quite some time that that you had um, if if you could afford both you would often have them matching um, because uh, it it was the fashion of the time basically it really doesn't uh, have any practical use of having a matching sword and dagger but it's cool i guess uh, yeah. But what's more interesting is that if you look at the people behind him, um, especially the the person who is uh, facing towards the right of of the picture, um, he has a very interesting helmet that looks more like a, a 15th or even 16th century uh, Italian style helmet, and uh, a, a lot of or you could at least interpret some of the other people to have a more later style. Uh, armor. Uh, so, so again, we we get a, a weird mix of of the, the crusader, the main guy uh, that that is in the center of attention. He's he's pretty spot on. But then then we have this anachronistic time traveling dude yeah. uh, from from a later time period. But but yeah, all in all, it's it's cool and it it depicts these um, 
as far as I know, very iconic uh, Italian or even Venetian style uh, galleys with with both oars and uh, and a mainmast with uh, with a sail on it. So yeah, I, I really like that. Um, yeah, the, I, the the ships match uh, fairly well what I've seen in the um, Venetian. Uh, maritime history museum uh venetian yeah. galleys of the time so i th- i think that that's actually quite accurate yeah uh i i agree on your assessment on on uh chapter two the uh which which in a way is kind of fitting because it's it's the one that focus on uh Tsimichi going around doing weird experiments to themselves and to uh other uh creatures as well uh but yes yeah, some of them are are a bit too much um they're, they're almost a bit cthulhu-esque in a way which um it, it kind of sets the mood but it's uh it, it's the kind of weird body horror that that looks good on paper but if you were going to include it in like if if you were going to show your players like this is what this weird creature looks like then it just gets weird because it's yeah it, it's in a way it's it's almost comical in in its body horror so uh, yeah I'm, I'm I have some split feelings about that or mixed feelings about those <coughs> yeah looking at at the maps one thing I I wanted to note was that the um, the Venice map it it looks kind of modern now obviously Venice hasn't changed all that much because they don't have room for it but uh, if I if I look at that map and then I I try to remember the the maps of Venice that I've used it it looks kind of like that uh, but on the other hand I'm thinking f- number one it's probably going to be a bit difficult to find a medieval map of Venice and number two like you mentioned it's not going to matter that much because <clears throat> it's it's just going to give people an idea of where things are in relations to each to each other. Um, so we start appropriately with an introduction, and this gives us an overlook of the campaign, themes and moods, and a mortal history of what has gone before and how the Fourth Crusade turns out. There's also some info on the three settings for the campaign, Venice, Zara, and Constantinople. The Constantinople section once again says one million people live in that city, which, as we covered when we did Constantinople by night, that's pretty unlikely. <clears throat> the same goes for the quoted 120,000 inhabitants of Venice. Uh, that would be half of what the city has today. So I would say that I would doubt that Venice had that many. Maybe if you add the population uh, that's on the mainland in, in the Republic, but but otherwise I would say that seems excessive, 120,000 people. But I don't know. What what do you think? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. But it's it's kind of one of those things that does it really matter if it's if it's it's sixty or a hundred or or a hundred and twenty thousand because at at as as long as you don't want the the kind of the amount of people to be a restriction when it comes to the amount of vampires you can have in the in the city it, it doesn't really matter so you you could probably do some research and and figure out some more historically accurate uh, numbers. Uh, but just saying that that uh, Venice is is a bustling city and, and a crowded city, not only because there's a lot of people and trade going on, but also because it's it's a limited space where where it's gonna be crowded no matter what. Um, yeah, and the same yeah, same goes for for Constantinople, which is like yeah, it's it's a huge city. It's it has um, like a bunch of people in it. 
Um, I've I've actually heard. I'm trying to remember where I I heard it or read it, but um, the the phrase a million was sometimes used, kind of just to uh, as as not really a placeholder, but but just to to show that something is a lot a lot like like if ah. we so so it's kind of um it's kind of a, a medieval or i think earlier way as well to to kind of show like yeah so how many of something is there and it's like yeah it's it's just a lot it's it's all of them it's a million it's yeah. a bunch uh so uh so so you could use it kind of like that if you want to if, if you don't want to set um if you don't want to set a fixed number, because a million of something, especially back in in the early 13th century, is it, it, that's basically all of whatever there is. Like, how many arrows do we have? We have a million. Okay, we're never yeah. going to run out of arrows. Uh, ah, how yeah. many enemies are there? There is a million. Well, at least okay. we have an arrow each for one of them. <laughs> uh, so. Yeah, well, that that would make a lot of sense. Then, basically, you know, if you look through old records and someone would say, well, how many people lived in, in the city? Well, according to, these, to the census, a million people. And that was just some guy going, okay, look, there's a lot of people in the city. Yeah. I'm just yeah. going to put down a million. People will understand that it means a lot. Yeah. Uh, so in any case, I think this gives a lot of information. Uh, I was surprised not to see any information on character creation or involvement, uh, but then I found out that that uh, came at the end in the appendix, so so that was fine. Mm. Um, so uh, is there anything you want to mention about this uh, this intro here? Uh, no, I, I think it uh, does well in, in what it's supposed to do with, with setting the mood and the themes and kind of showing, uh, showing you what it's uh, going to be. Um, I, I also like that that you have uh, a bit of, of a mortal history on it, um, and and it kind of shows what a chaotic time period it is and how um, how how divided uh, the mortal society is not only between the Muslim world and the Christian world but also the different factions in in this case the the Christian world. So you have. Uh, you have Innocent III, the current Pope, who is kind of uh, at odds with uh, the Patriarch and, and Constantinople. Um, and, and fun fact, Innocent III is actually the second Pope called Innocent III, because uh, <laughs> about two decades earlier, there was an anti-Pope uh, who was also called Innocent III. So uh, if, if you're doing historical research on this guy, make sure that it's the right Innocent the third, because he's technically innocent the third, the second. <laughs> innocent the third, part two. Even yeah, innocent exactly. Though. Yeah, <laughs> Venetian Boogaloo. <laughs> I don't know, uh, but, but but yeah, it's uh, I really like it, and um, and yeah, there's there's a lot of things that you could uh, spin on or or make spin-offs on or or kind of like involve your characters uh, in. Uh, and, and a lot of threads that you can pull on to kind of uh, get everything rolling and, and to set the mood. Yeah, and, and I, th I like that they, they, you know, they give you the reason for why the Fourth Crusade is starting in Venice, mm -hmm. why they end up attacking Zara, and why they end up uh, sacking Constantinople. Because, I mean, if, you just, uh, if you've just a, a, a sort of a surface knowledge of the Crusade in Crusades, it must seem really weird. Like, why on earth uh, are the Crusaders... Uh, congregating in Venice, why are they taking over 
a Christian city? Why are they attacking the greatest city in Christendom? But it all it all makes sense, and it all comes down to to politics and greed and a whole lot of stuff that doesn't have anything to do with with religion. Um, yeah, sorry. Yeah, do you want to say something? no. I'm just looking through my notes, and 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 I'm gonna come back to this later on as well. But there's there's a mention that that one of the things that I can't remember who promises who, but there's uh, between the mortals. It's is one of the deals that they make is um, that they're going to set up uh, uh, or or fund uh, the stationing 500 Christian knights in the Holy Land, and uh, and the, this kind of shows because a lot of the reasons behind the Fourth Crusade going to Constantinople were purely economical. Like people couldn't pay off their debts, so they had to make deals that weren't really beneficiary to them. Uh, And so they ended up making a lot of promises. And 500 knights, we're we're not talking about 500 soldiers, that's that's a lot. So it it shows you um, not not only is 500 people, quite a bit, quite a lot of of people, but also 500 mountain knights, uh, that's that's a huge investment. Um, For example, in by this time in in Sweden, if you as a noble uh, could uh, could uh, give the king or or promise the king uh, one mountain knight, basically it was supposed to be you uh, that you could serve as as uh, as a knight when when needed. You were exempt from taxes. You became nobility. Yeah. Uh, so and and that was just for you for for one person. And you so, have to remember so, one mountain knight isn't just the knight there's yeah, a lot of exactly. other stuff and probably at least one squire has to be attached to him yeah exactly there's logistics behind it so so it just kind of shows the the enormity of of the promises being made here that that yeah where if if you do this for us then then we're gonna uh, set up 500 of me in in the holy land whenever yeah it's done. Uh, but but yeah, I'm just gonna keep that number in mind because we're gonna yeah. come back to it later on. So uh, chapter one, Venetian Knights takes place in Venice. No surprise there. <laughs> the setup is that key knights from all over Europe and beyond meet in order to try and decide what the upcoming crusade should target: Egypt or Palestine. Because Palestine is where Jerusalem is located, but Egypt is a political, military, and logistical center of power for the Ayyubid dynasty. Now, this was also a debate in uh, in our world. The most pious wanted to go to Palestine since the purpose of the crusade was to retake Jerusalem. But those with a practical attitude realized that attacking Egypt would make taking back Jerusalem much easier. Um, because if you, you don't just have to take Jerusalem, you have to hold it and you can't hold Jerusalem uh, if if you just allow the Ayyubids to sit in Egypt and, and have you know all the time in the world to prepare a counterattack. Uh, I really, really, really like how it's made clear from the start that the vampires are full of hubris because they think they can direct the course of the crusade, uh, but really they they can't. And that's a huge point in favor of this book. You have all these vampires meeting saying, all right, where are we going to direct the crusade? And the book is saying, yeah, they can they can make all the decisions they want. But in reality, it's the mortals who are going to decide where the crusade goes. Yeah, exactly, and and uh, it's it's a man's world in in the truest part of the sense of the word, but but yeah, and I, I really like this as well, and and uh, and the book tells you to to kind of hammer home this point, um, 
because it it kind of sets the mood for what is coming with the Inquisition and stuff like that later on. Uh, yeah. But but yeah, I, I really like it because it 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 gives you kind of this uh, this idea or this this image of this kind of pompous, arrogant uh, rulers of the night. That yeah, of course we're the important ones, and and you have all these debates. And when when all of that is finally settled, they they just turn around and and everything is already decided for them. Uh, so <laughs> because the, the mortals like yeah, well you've been doing that. We're we're actually been been deciding stuff uh but it it opens up for some interesting storytelling or uh a, a clever character like if if one of the player characters for example um is is on the side of of going to uh, um uh to to one of the other uh places and or to the winning side so to speak you could easily like, yeah, and of course the humans decided to go uh, to this place because I influenced them to, to <laughs> go there. Uh, so, so it kind of opens up for for some clever shenanigans as well. If if you have a clever player or at least a clever player character, yeah. So the intro to this uh, scenario it also includes suggestions as to how the characters could get involved what factions are in Venice and what their plans are and how the characters could be members of these factions. Uh, and it's all good, except it does fail to mention that if one of the characters happens to be Venetian, a big part of the setup of the story needs to be rewritten. And if a majority of the characters are Venetian, then it falls apart completely. Of course, a storyteller who's read the scenario will, will know this, but I think they should have included at least a mention that characters in order to make the scenario work, cannot be Venetian. Uh, but we'll get to that when we talk about mm. how the scenarios start. Um, so I don't know if you have have any more thoughts on the intro here. No, no not really. Uh, not at this point. Uh, but but yeah, I, I agree that it it's probably easiest to, to have the characters not be from Venice. Yeah, which is kind of weird. I mean, if, mm. if the storyteller says, okay, we're playing this uh, Fourth Crusade campaign and we start in Venice... I'm thinking that in most groups there would be at least some people who would go, hey, why not make characters who are from Venice? That is an instant investment in it. Uh, <clears throat> but it's a, it's a thing that they, they've they done uh, a number of times. I know we haven't covered Transylvania Chronicles yet, but they do it there as well, where the this game is Transylvania Chronicles, but the setup uh, sort of, of assumes that the characters are not from Transylvania, but we'll get to that later. So mm. the scenario, <clears throat> it basically involves the characters being set up as fall guys. You have some Muslim Azamites who wants to kill a Setite because the Setites who have infiltrated the Ventrue delegation and are posing as Ventrue. They want to ensure that the crusade goes to Egypt in order to weaken Muslim control in the Setite homeland, which, you know, that is a very uh, uh, plausible idea here. Uh, once the quote-unquote Ventrue is killed, the characters are framed, and the Prince of Venice says that while he does not believe they are guilty, a crime requires someone to be punished, and as outsiders who seem like they might be involved, he's willing to sacrifice the characters to keep the peace in the city. So he gives the characters a chance to solve the murder before he's forced to punish them. Now, one thing that is very real when it comes to the Middle Ages is the idea that when a murder has been committed, someone must be punished, and punishing yeah. outsiders who have even the slightest bit of suspicion connected to them was very often a thing that happened. Uh, even in a cosmopolitan city such as Venice, people were wary of outsiders. But this setup falls completely apart if all or most of the characters are Venetians and really 
if, like I said, if the Chronicle is is set to start in Venice, you'd expect someone to to choose that. So it's 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 a bit. They they should just say remember the character shouldn't be for Venice because then you have yeah. a very historically accurate setup being we're going to punish some of the outsiders. Yeah, exactly. And and I'm I'm thinking like I'm 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 starting to to kind of 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 brainstorming ideas how it could work uh even if the characters are from Venice. And yeah, you could probably figure some ways out like like uh the uh, them inviting an an NPC from out of the city, and the M- NPC is blamed for the murder. And since they're the uh, the people hosting that NPC, then then the players must uh, solve the crime and stuff like that. But yeah, but yeah, it, it just gets a bit um, complicated. So it's it's probably just easier to um, to to tell the characters that yeah, you you have to be you you can't be from Venice. That's that's yeah. gonna. It, advice for the dms out there it's going to save you a lot of work and and headaches so just just tell them you can be from other parts of italy if you want to but just just make sure that the characters um aren't aren't from venice itself yeah and the framing of the characters is also handled extremely clunkily in my opinion the setup is that when the characters arrive in venice what seems to be a young peasant woman hands them a bouquet of flowers uh, now, these are the ingredients of a powerful anti-vampire poison, and the young woman is in reality an Asamite, and this is how they're planning on implicating the characters, because they kill the Setite disguised as a Ventru using this poison. Uh, if anybody asks her why she gives them these flowers, she'll say that it's a Venetian tradition to give them to newcomers. And here you see things fall apart if just one of the characters happens to be Venetian and knows that this is not a tradition. Yeah. And also, <clears throat> I mean, if, if you have people who, who know stuff about the Middle Ages, like, um, or just, you know, do a bit of, of thinking, because Venice is a trading hub with tons of people coming in every day. Yeah. How are people to know who are newcomers? And who pays for all these flowers? I mean, I, I yeah, assume exactly. that... Well, being... well I'm, I'm assuming that in a city as Venice, if they had that tradition... Someone would at least sell the flowers, uh, or or there could be such a thing as as a flower tax that everyone has to pay, so that the city can pay for all of the flowers. So it it does open up for a lot of interesting, uh, like what ifs or, or could be's. Uh, but yeah, I I agree that it's a very clunky and and kind of obvious way to like here, dear strangers, I'm gonna give these flowers to you. And only to you, and then I'm gonna run away. So it's, yeah, it, it, it there are ways that you could handle it better. Um, like for for example, I'm I'm toying with the idea that uh, you could you could have like uh, make it a beggar child that is like, oh please uh, buy my flowers so I can eat tonight or something like that. Yeah. Um, or or as. Um, like the, the one thing that that really struck me, uh, like just it's it's a uh, it's a story set in Venice, and it doesn't really include the carnival, uh, and and the carnival uh, as as we know it didn't really uh, take form until a lot later with with the the types of the most famous masks uh, and and outfits are from much later yeah. uh, but it was uh, the the reason why it was uh, celebrated was uh, uh, was a victory uh, against i can't remember but the i think it was the turks 
uh, but I'm not 100% sure. No, I don't think it was the Turks because the the Turks weren't really in this part. No, sorry, the, no, that was that's right, that was later. Um, yeah, it was um, probably some other. Uh, yeah, probably some uh, other Italian uh, city-state Italian <laughs> republic. But but basically, it was it was back in uh, 11 1162 already, and and it was basically just dancing and celebrating in uh, the square of Saint Mark. And so if, if you want to have like a, a kind of proto-carnival, like, yeah, we're still celebrating uh, the, that victory that was about 50 years ago. Of course, if, if vampires were included uh, or involved rather in that victory, then they would, of course, be interested in, uh, in kind of like keeping the memory alive because for them, 50 years is nothing yeah. uh, or 40 years even. Uh, so, so you could, in, instead of having this very obvious, uh, here, take these flowers and don't ask any questions, uh, have them, have the players arrive. Perhaps that's the reason why they're even in the city to, to, uh, take part in this, in this festival. And one of the revelers is just, uh, like dancing past them. And then of course, since it's a carnival, you can have them wear some kind of mask and no one will ask question and just hand them a bunch of flowers or, or something uh, would make a bit more sense. Um, at, at least that's that's one way of doing it. Uh, yeah, and, and it's one that ties in with, with the general perception of Venice, so yeah, I actually really, exactly. really like that. Yeah. Uh, one interesting thing, though, is that the, the flower in question, Bloodroot, it is a real flower, uh, but it's in in the uh, in the story it's it's mentioned to be from North Africa or Iberia, uh, but it's actually from North America, which <laughs> is a problem uh, for obvious geographical reasons. Um, and it is it, it can be poisonous, so it uh, it, it is uh, like the, the properties. I don't know its real life effects on vampires, but it's. Um, <laughs> Uh, it it does exist uh, and it has a cool name, so I'm guessing that's why they they picked it. But I I would have chosen I, I would make up a plant or, or take one that is actually from Europe. Uh, yeah, and doing this. <clears throat> the effect that uh, that this poison has, the way it's described, it, it makes it insanely powerful. And they try to sort of reduce the power by making it really really difficult to make and apply yeah. and all that sort of stuff. But it would just seem like this this type of of um, poison available through plants rather than high level disciplines. It it to me it, it should have had a a bigger um, presence. But here it's just introduced and we never hear about it again. So again, it's a little clumsy. And I think in general the way of framing the characters it's clumsy. It's it's easily derailed. But other than that. I think the scenario is actually quite good. The investigation, yeah. um, proving their innocence, possibly foiling another Asamite attack, stuff like that. Uh, you also get some introductions to the Canite politics of the situations because obviously the Canites are are discussing what to do with the Crusade and the characters get involved in that. Um, <clears throat> you get introduced to some of the important mortals involved. It's a good setup for the rest of the campaign, uh, but... Just the way that that the whole thing is structured feel a bit clumsy, but if you if you change that around, I think the scenario works quite fine. Yeah, uh, and and just to clarify for those who haven't read, what what happens is that the 
the Setite uh, Ventru in disguise, uh, he's he's poisoned by these flowers, and it's quite obvious that it's it's by uh, the poison made from the flowers, and and someone has spotted the the play characters with these flowers that he got from what turns out to be one of the Asamite assassins. Uh, and and so that's that's how they're framed for it. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 kind of an, an easy or not easy, but but uh, a simple who done it and and kind of like yeah, the, the characters have to uh, figure out uh, who who the real culprit is. Uh, and I th- there's a lot of things about it that I really like, uh, and not only the fact that that we actually get both of the other. Uh, lesbian vampire assassins. Uh, we get both Fatim Al Fakadi and yeah. uh, Lucita of Aragon. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if it's their first appearances, uh, at least together. Uh, it's the uh, first appearance together. Lucita has uh, appeared yeah. in uh, Transylvania yeah, right. Chronicles. Yeah, and uh, Transylvania by Night. Yeah, so so we have we have that, uh, but but um, we we have the clever setup. I like that the Prince of Venice. He tells them that yeah you you don't have to or he tells the player characters that I don't really care about this but you have to do it because it's it's tradition uh, and you don't necessarily have to find a real culprit but you just have to clear yourselves uh, like that's that's what you need to do so it, it's not a bit, uh, that much of a pressure on the player characters they're probably gonna find a real murderer anyways. But it's still like, yeah, we just have to prove our innocence. We don't have to find the real culprit. And what I really like is that uh, they they have a set time period of doing it. So it's you, you kind of get this feeling of, of it being rushed. Uh, and the prince also tells them that he doesn't want any more dead bodies lying around or, or showing up. So, so the, the players are kind of restricted in that they can't just go around killing people or, or using too much violence because... That's gonna upset the prince anyway. So, so you have you have a, a set of um, almost rules of engagements that that they have to adhere adhere to, uh, which, if anything else, it kind of um, limits the the murder hobo uh, kind of players in a way. So, so that they can't just brute force the way through the scenario. <coughs> yeah, and also, I mean. Uh, I can imagine some players going, "Well, this, this is this isn't fair," and and no, it isn't because it's the Middle Ages and yeah. things weren't fair. Uh, someone has died. You're the easy ones to pin it on, and at least the uh, the people in charge are saying you get a chance to prove your your own innocence. Uh, so <clears throat> it it demonstrates how the uh, the Middle Ages worked in regards to this kind of a thing very very nicely. Um, I was a bit sad that there were no stats for uh, for Fatima because um, it's set up so that that the characters might have to follow her or possibly might even end up in a fight with her. So it would be a nice thing to have stats for her, at least just her obfuscate to see if they can find her. Um, yeah. Also, there's a couple of places where it seems like um, uh, where, where the characters are told to roll alertness to judge someone's mood. Uh, where I think you know you should use empathy. Just that's a minor thing, but it's just I, I, I like to have as many um, uh, uh, stats involved as possible because when characters are made and people make various characters, it's nice to to have as much of it as possible involved. 
Um, there's all there's also I laughed a bit at that. At at one point, uh, characters can ask about some NPC, and they're told that he's always seen near the water. And I was like, yeah, yeah, it's Venice. Yeah, it would yeah, be exactly. a major thing if he was never seen near water, because yeah. that's that's an achievement in Venice. Um, and also, uh, when <clears throat> when they first meet Fatima, disguises that um, beggar girl uh, or peasant girl. There's uh, stuff about trying to follow her, and as someone who's been to Venice, uh, if you get a 30-second head start, uh, nobody's following you. Like, I'm fairly certain you could put a tracking device on me, but if you gave yeah. me a 30-second head start, you couldn't find me. Uh, it's it's it almost impossible to convey just how labyrinthine Venice is. It is insane. Yeah, and I'm I'm guessing that part of that probably comes later when when the um structures of um of venice gets more and more complicated because a lot of of modern venice is later than the 12th century but but yeah it's i'm i'm guessing that even back uh at at this time in what is it 1202 or 1203 it's 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 still like it's there's a lot of alleys and and bridges and um yeah if, if you're a vampire you can just find the nearest canal and jump into it and and swim underwater or just hide there because you there's you can well you don't even need to hold your breath you can just stay yeah, exactly. underwater or if you and, have the right disciplines you could jump a canal uh, yeah. so yeah it's 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 yeah. a very good city to uh, to get away in yeah um, so um, so chapter two is called fiendish winter and it takes place first in the city of zara and then in transylvania uh, there's a rather complicated backstory that leads to the enmity of two, two Tsimish vampires, uh, as well as one of them sabotaging food stores and stirring up trouble for the Crusaders in Zara. Mm-hmm. Uh, as mentioned, the story starts in Zara, be- and that's because Venice got the Crusaders to attack Zara in order to help pay their debts. Uh, Zara may be a Christian city, but it's a trade rival to Venice, and Venice has um, attacked and occupied Zara before. Um, so, you know, Christian crusaders attacked, sacked, and occupied a Christian city, all in the name of prophet. Um, yeah. Prophet uh, <laughs> or prophet, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. More prophet than prophet. Yeah. Um, um, so, and and, it, it, and all of this is, is true. It's not some made something made up. No, no. Uh, the, the city of Sara is, uh, today it's called Zadar, and I think it's, is it in Croatia? Uh, yeah, it's on the Dalmatian coast, and I'm fairly certain it's Croatia. Yeah, so so yeah, everything. Well, not not everything happened as in the book, but it's it's a true thing, and and it's part of the ongoing, um, like like Venice and and Constantinople or or what is later on Istanbul, uh, is like those two cities have had a conflict for for literally hundreds of years. Uh, and and I'm, it it went on. There there was a war in um, sixteen eighty seven where uh, where Venice uh, uh, beat the the what was then the Turks or the Ottomans. That was and the they, one I was thinking of. <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, and that's also when when they stole um, the uh, because Saint Mark, which is the patron saint of Venice, uh, one of his symbols is the lion, and in. Uh, the Greek harbor city or port town of, of Piraeus, they found a really cool lion and they brought it back to, I think it's in Lion Saint statue. Mark. Yeah, lion. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Not lion a live statue. Lion. <laughs> uh, good, good point pointing it out. Uh, and, and what's interesting about that is uh, 
about 200 years later when the Swedish ambassador uh, to Italy uh, visited Venice and he saw it, he realized that it was covered in Viking runes. Uh, <laughs> so so the, um, uh, again, we, we have the old, the, the ghoul Viking bodyguards of, uh, of Constantinople and uh, or at least Vikings going to uh, to Constantinople and uh, and to Greece obviously as well. Uh, so we, which is kind of cool. And if if you want to have, uh, of, of course it would have to be in a later uh, later set uh, campaign. But I, I think it's kind of cool that we found the uh, the remnants of, of Vikings in uh, in in Greece in the ancient city of Greece then being conquered by the very modern city of, of Venice and, and they bring a ruined lion statue uh, back yeah. to Venice. Uh, but but yeah, this this conflict has been going on forever. And and of course, the area itself, the Dalmatian coast and up to what is now Croatia and, and the area of former Yugoslavia, there's there's always been a lot of conflicts. Um, so, so this is something you could build on as well. Uh, for example, Venice uh, has... Uh, w- one of the things they did was was to get rid of, of a lot of the pirates that were on that side of the Adriatic Sea. So, uh, so if if you want to include the characters uh, in that way, perhaps they've been pirate hunters. If if you want to have some more action-inspired things or, or reasons why the uh, why the uh, player characters are are in the area from the beginning, or they could just follow the crusade, which is kind of the the standard. Uh, reason for uh, that that's given in the book, but yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting things going on uh, in in this area. At, well, not only this time, but but for quite some time. Yeah, it's basically one big trade war as to who gets to dominate the Adriatic and the the Eastern Mediterranean. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, uh, food stores are being ruined and uh, strange things are occurring. And with winter coming, this is bad for the city. So the characters find themselves being asked by the Prince of Zara to investigate this before it leads to the Crusaders uh, doing more damage to his city because the Crusaders are uh, spending the winter there. And obviously, you know, you need food. Uh, so the characters eventually uh, track down the troublemaker in the form of a Tsimish working for her father-slash-sire in order to, aven- to avenge her brother-slash-brutemate's death at the hands of the Crusaders. Uh, this setup is quite nice. It's a fun little investigation plot, though some people might think that two investigation plots back-to-back is a bit repetitive. I don't personally mind. We get to see just how important food stores were back then, and how easily you could ride up a crowd with just uh, minimal use of, of disciplines. So the first half of the scenario in general, I, I really like this. Yeah, I, I did as well. And uh, again, it, it shows how chaotic uh, situations like this could be, because uh, Zera is, I don't remember how how big, it's it's not a huge city. And so, if you have this this influx of, of crusaders, and of course the crusaders are going to bring uh, camp followers and and hangarounds and and people like that. So so it's it's going to be a crowded city, and as you mentioned, um, with with the food stores being sabotaged sabotaged and and winter coming, that's going to cause problems. Uh, so so you can do a lot of things with that. Um, I, I really like the fact that one of one of the or the way that um, that the the players uh, find these uh, the the Tsimichi, 
is uh, is that they find um, basically flesh-crafted animals that, that have been left in, in the city just to, to basically stir up problems. Uh, and, and one of them... One of them is kind of weird because it's uh, they they get to a stable and and they find uh, two pigs that has been altered with with wolf's teeth and they are eating a normal pig, uh, and then you have these weird uh, chickens or hens uh, that where where the head has been moved from the neck to the middle of the back and they just they just had the one leg so they have to hop around, which can be kind of weird and always Monty Python esque. But if if you look at at pictures of grotesque animals from the yeah. from the dark ages, you you do have these really like fantastical beasts, and of course a lot of them are are kind of like beasts of hell shown in especially in later you have uh, Hieronymus Bosch who likes to to draw these weird creatures in hell. He was uh, weird. Yeah, he he smoked something that he probably shouldn't. <laughs> or or perhaps just the fumes from lead-based paints that were quite often used. But but yeah, so so you could what what I would do instead of showing this uh, the the pictures in in the book because you do have the pictures of of the uh, two pigs, the wolf pigs eating the the normal pig. I'd, I'd just Google around and, and try to uh, find uh, actual historical pictures of of some kind of beast. And of course, you can you can just change it if if you don't want it to be pigs. They can just be whatever other weird animals that yeah. you can find. Um, what what is kind of um, comical though is that uh, one of the suggestions on on how to find the next clues is basically to interview the pigs using animalism which is a good idea uh but it's it described as um the the pigs don't understand their sudden convulsion to eat the flesh of their brethren. uh yeah which is kind of weird because pigs do eat meat and it's not uncommon for them to eat each other if if there's not nothing else around so except for that uh that's kind of weird uh if if you want to make it a bit more grotesque change it so that the pigs are eating a human and that they've actually hunted down and killed perhaps a, a stable boy or a, a, the, the keeper of them and that's why they're confused that yeah we usually just eat uh, uh, dead uh, meat but now we we felt the need to hunt it so that's 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 the reason why they feel strange uh, but but yeah except for that it's it's a really weird uh kind of scene and it also shows just how grotesque and 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 just fucked up that Samish can be so yeah. so I, I really like that one so in the second part the characters are asked to go negotiate with the Tsumish who's causing the trouble uh a man with the awesome name of Bodor Toth. I don't know why, but I just think his name is really, really cool. Um, <laughs> so I, when I first read like Bodor Toth, yeah, that sounds that sounds amazing. He sounds like a yeah. badass. Uh, <clears throat> the characters are introduced to Vukos, who I assume everyone listening to this knows who is. Uh, and he says that he knows where Toth is. And so the characters, they go there with uh, Vukos as their guide. As it turns out, Bodor is being targeted by a much older and more powerful submission named Koban, Another cool name, by the way. Uh, <clears throat> and so while the characters are trying to get Bodor to stop attacking Zara, they end up in a siege. 
And now the setup seems to be that they will help Bordor defend himself against Koban in exchange for Bordor calling off the troubles he's making in Zara. Uh, but it's clear that Koban is more powerful than Bordor, and it seems just as easy to just abandon Bordor to be destroyed so that he can't make any more trouble. Uh, anyway, other than this little misstep, I think it's an interesting scenario with a lot of opportunities for the characters to affect the outcome, even if they're not fighters. That's that's one thing I want to point yeah. out. It's done really well. If you have characters who are good at fighting, obviously they're going to have stuff to do in a siege, but characters who are not uh, good fighters will still have something to do. They set it up really nicely. Um, <clears throat> however... This second part feels a bit misplaced since it has nothing to do with the crusade. Uh, they, they, the backstory does tie it into Constantinople and the Obertus, uh submission, everything. But I think I would have preferred something that focused more on Zara and the Crusaders and less on goings on in Transylvania. Uh, that doesn't make it a bad scenario. It's yeah. just it it makes it a bit um, disjointed from from the rest of it. But what do you think? Yeah, I, I hadn't really thought about that, but now that you mention it, it, it is a good point. Um, I, I guess that one of the points that you could kind of make is is that uh, it, it introduces them to, to Vikos, to Mika Vikos at this point, uh, who uh, will later on have uh, or could have influence in, in the last part taking place in Constantinople. Um, and and also because spoilers, kind of what what happens when when they've done their thing in in Toth, which is also both the village and the, the name of um, of the family, the ruling family, which makes sense. Uh, when when they uh, return to Zara, uh, they they find the, that the city has been sacked and burned by the Crusaders. So it it could it it goes back a bit to the whole yeah, vampires can't really influence or affect things too much when when the mortals have their own opinions and and so it, it kind of sets up a bit of this futility and and kind of like yeah we we did a thing but holy fuck someone else did another thing and all our uh, all our plans have have just been foiled because yeah all our uh, hard work was for naught yeah exactly so so you, you you can you can kind of counter it with with that but but yeah if if the players are more interested in uh, in the whole yeah let's follow the crusade thing then then yeah it's it's gonna be um it, it's it it can i i can see that it can be a bit disappointing uh but it does also kind of set up nicely uh the the sacking of constantinople uh spoilers for something that happened 800 <laughs> years ago uh but but yeah so so that you can you can kind of get a uh, a, a preview of, of what's to come but 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 yeah it's it could be kind of disjointed from from the rest of the story especially if they as you mentioned uh go just like yeah koban is the stronger one we're, we're not going to mess with him and and uh, because there's a whole siege and fighting and it's going to be fighting during the day and yeah fuck that we're if if they kill uh, Bodon and and his brood, then this uh, attacks against uh, the food stores are gonna stop anyway. So yeah, good luck with that. Now, obviously, yeah. um, if I recall correctly, Bodor uh, was Christian in life, and Koban is quite obviously not. Yeah. So if if you have a group that is very Christian, that is one way of of getting yeah. them to stay by saying, okay, you are you're helping a Christian 
more or less, <laughs> lord um, against a, a pagan who's actually using pagan magic. So, so, so that would yeah, that, be one way. Yeah, that's that's a good way because you and that that way you can actually tie it into the uh, to what you might call it the the crusading part. If if you have uh, characters, player characters who are actual crusaders and perhaps even on the road of of heavens or humanity then it would be kind of in their interest to fight this very devilish um, uh, Koban. Uh, and he has one of the coolest thrones. I'm, I'm not going to spoil anything about it. Oh, yes. Uh, but if you play this and, and the DMs make something about what he's sitting on, because that was one of the weirdest and most fucked up and impressive things I've, I've ever read. Uh, yeah, it's it's one of those things where it could go one of two ways, but I think they really managed to pull it off to just because if especially if if uh, the Kateri does not include any Tsumish or anyone who's had experience with the, with the Tsumish, this can be used to really hammer home these vampires are different and yeah. they are messed yeah. up. Yeah, they are seriously messed up. Uh, but but yeah, so the, this uh, uh, scenario ends in in basically a a huge siege battle, which uh, is I, I like the way it's described, and it's like you mentioned, there are ways for uh, for the player characters to uh, to get involved, even if they're not fighters. Uh, but this is where I want to come back to. Uh, to the 500 knights in in the Holy Lands that we previously mentioned, uh, because the, uh, the the defending force that that this scenario kind of assumes that the, the players are gonna be a part of, they have about what 25 uh, 25 actual soldiers and and then about as many uh, just uh, auxiliary kind of militia and, and uh, press-ganged uh, villages and stuff like that. They're up against 240 trained fighting men, 40 trained archers, 60 untrained uh, men and women, and then a bunch of ghouls and revenants and, and a few canines. So so this is this is a fighting force of, of over 300 people, which shows just how powerful Koban is. So, so it again. It's it. This is something that uh, the, uh, the the storyteller should should really emphasize is that this isn't just a, a small border dispute between um, far off barons fighting over their lands. This is like uh, Bodor Toth and his family. They're up against a huge force. Uh, at least comparatively, yeah. The, the Crusader force back in um, back in Zara. Yeah, they're they're many times that but they're not going to help them uh, they're too far away it's, it takes a few months to get there yeah exactly uh, and, and so just when when you do this scene emphasize just how what what a large fighting force this guy has and and added to that are are the war ghouls and and the revenants and and uh, canine leaders so so yeah this is this is going to be a huge battle and it's it's not really set who's going to win but make this a cool one because it's it it's going to be the uh the 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 highlight of or or the uh, the climax of this story so yeah. so you make something cool out of it 
Yeah, they, they do make a bit of a mistake because they say that one of the big advantages that Bodo Toth has is that he's in a castle and um, because of of everything, um, uh, Koban is not going to be bringing siege engines. But at this point in time, it was rare to actually bring siege engines. And if you did bring siege engines, it wasn't like you were, you were putting them on wheels and dragging them along. Yeah. You would carry them disassembled. But it was much more common to basically arrive at the castle you were going to siege and then you'd have engineers who knew how to be, build siege engines. You'd cut down the local trees and make siege engines out of that. So, um, so yeah, it's the, the fact that someone's traveling without siege engines doesn't mean that they won't have siege engines. It just means that they're going to be building them on site. Yeah, which, which of course, would take time, which would be uh, kind of against the interest of the invading forces if they are vampires, because they're kind of limited in how much or, well both but everyone is going to be limited on, on how much blood they have but it's it's well, gonna that is take, true yeah it's it's gonna take time to to build those siege engines and and again you there's a time limit i think it's just three or four nights that uh that that this siege takes place so so it's again you can you can use that uh, you, one thing that you could change is that just just change the terrain that's that uh uh, the castle is built on, so it's not built on, on kind of flat ground, or, or have it on on top of a steep slope where you, you really can't use siege engines. Anyways. Oh yeah, that would be a good idea. Uh, but but yeah, emphasize again, emphasize the fact that uh, that it's this is going to be short, brutal, and bloody, uh, and and that uh, Koban, the attacker, he's he's not really interested in a drawn out siege. He he just wants to kill the Toth family and and just again emphasize the fact that it's it's brutal and bloody uh and that that warfare uh isn't something especially not against the Tsimichi with Borgus <laughs> isn't isn't a pleasant thing yeah uh, speaking of the castle they have a map of the castle and while it's not as bad as um Seoris, it's it's still a bit fantasy looking and the size of the castle because uh, Toth is described as like a big village small town yeah. sitting on a pass that was that was never uh, like a big trading pass in the mountains and I, I'm just thinking how the hell did that family ever manage to build a castle that big with a tower and everything um, so so that might be a bit of a, a of an issue yeah but, but it's, yeah. it's Transylvania there's supposed to be castles everywhere but but yeah, yeah I, I agree I agree with you that it's uh, it's a bit weird that they um, the, that they have such a big castle and and we also have uh, at least on the second floor you you have uh, kind of these corridors that aren't really used uh, yeah well yeah, it's a waste enough. of waste of space yeah uh, at least they don't have a, a smithy on the on the second floor, so the, the kitchen <laughs> is on the ground floor, which makes sense. But, but yeah, yeah. it's again you you kind of have to take these things with a with a pinch of salt. But but yeah, it's it's a bit weird. Mm. So chapter three, Dying Embers, chronicles the fall of Constantinople and involves the characters in a number of important events, like the destruction of the Obertus Simish Jesu. Uh, and the death, possibly via Diableria, of Michael the Patriarch, as well as the general downfall of Constantinople and Michael's dream. This is all tied in heavily with Constantinople by night, and I feel like if you haven't read that book, then you won't really understand much much of what's going on in this chapter. Uh, do you agree? Yeah, I, I really agree. I think 
you more or less need uh, Constantinople uh, by night as as kind of a companion book to this because uh, you get a lot of um, yeah 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 you get you get basically what's happening if you have Constantinople by night. Uh, I I'm I'm just gonna point out that the, the kind of opening splash page for this chapter is is a really nice picture of of. Uh, Michael the Toreador in in his kind of stained glass angel yeah. uh, disguise or or skies uh, which call it uh, appearance uh, against the background of the burning city. So yeah, it's it's really cool and yeah, that uh, picture of him looks a lot better than the one in the Constantinople by Night book. I yeah. think this one works a lot better. Yeah, it does. Uh, so, but at least after uh, after this, they really. Or, or well, they, they can still go back to Constantinople, but in a few hundred years they can't go back to Constantinople now because no, because it's Const- Istanbul, not Constantinople. Yeah, exactly, um, <laughs> oh, and that's God. nobody's business but the Turks. Uh, <laughs> but but yeah, it's uh, w- what I do like about this entire uh, the, this entire story is, is that it in in some ways it kind of combines elements from the previous two chapters, and it builds to a crescendo. Uh, and and you get you you get kind of uh, a huge and and it's even mentioned that uh, because as as those who have read Constantinople by night knows that that it it all ends with um, the destruction of Michael in one way or the other uh, and and that is a big thing in in the Canaanite world uh, so so yeah it's it's a really cool. Um, Building up to to this to this magnificent event, uh, and uh, I really like it. Yeah, it does uh, a lot to make the characters active participants in affairs that are really uh, <clears throat> monumental. Like you have a fourth generation, thousands upon thousands of year old Toreador, yet what happens to him is still going to be dictated somewhat by the actions of the characters who are at this point, you know, they're not neonates anymore, but they're still going to be <coughs> relatively young vampires. Um, and and it, it, it does a lot to sort of paint this ending of an era uh, as long as... I, I really feel like you should have uh, anyone playing this read Constantinople by Night first to get the idea of what's going on, because as we mentioned when we did Constantinople by Night, there's a lot of esoteric stuff going on. There's a lot of, of very philosophical stuff going on. And if you just go through this with, oh, this guy dies and these people leave and this stuff happens, then you don't really get the full impact of it um, because it is really tied into the ideas and the concepts that were presented in Constantinople by Night. Yeah, I, I agree. And they're like... I, I don't know. I'm I'm starting to think that it it could be cool to have, uh, if if you if you're not making uh, the characters from scratch or making new characters to play this this campaign, it it could be interesting if if at least a few of the characters in the coterie has been to Con- Constantinople before, so that yeah. they kind of recognize which which also uh, gives you an excuse for for the players to read at least parts of Constantinople by night and uh, and so that that they get this kind of familiar feel to it and get because as you're saying if if you don't know what's going on you're gonna miss a lot of what's what's really cool and important in uh, in in this campaign 
because of, of yeah. course it, it's it's about the uh, the the siege of Constantinople has gone on for a while and this is basically the sack of Constantinople uh, which is a really cool setting in and of itself and and I'm thinking like um, if if you have a character there was uh, a participant like like if you have a a, a character who uh, started out as a mortal crusader and and participated in the sack of Jerusalem back in yeah. 10, what ninety nine or whenever it was something like that I think yeah. yeah then then you could have these really cool ideas of of flashbacks and like oh I've I've been here I've I've seen where where this is going uh, and it's not gonna go well uh, and and uh, and and kind of show you the. The, the circle of life if you allow that expression yeah but, but kind of like yeah history does repeat itself and and crusades aren't a pleasant thing and i've been through this before and uh and and it kind of shows what happens or, or like if if you have what just the one character when he starts to see uh kind of the signs so like okay the crusader has breached the gates i we know, know what's going to happen, happen now. now yeah and and we need to get the fuck out of here because it's it's not going to be pleasant, especially since when when I was on the other side of that situation, I know what happened, and I was immortal back then, so I didn't have to care about the sun rays or sunlight and sun going up. Uh, but now I'm a vampire, and it's going to be fire, and it's going to be blood, and it's going to be sunlight, and it's going to be all of those things that vampires really don't like. Uh, the clock is ticking. We need yeah, to get going. Exactly. And one thing that it really does very well is is parallel mortal and canite events and history. Yeah. Because this is the end of an era. For the vampires, it's the end of an era of vampires thinking the elders are uh, the oldest among us are untouchable and we are the ones who direct the big events in mortal history. Yeah. This shows once and for all, that when the mortals get <clears throat> going, y- all you can do is is hang on and ride along. You cannot steer them. Uh, and in mortal society, this this is the beginning of the end for uh, Constantinople and the, the Byzantine Empire. And uh, 200 years, 250 years from now, they will be taken by the Ottomans, and yeah. and it's here that you can you can draw a direct line from what happens in twelve o four to what happens in is it fourteen fifty or something like fourteen fifty three if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, when when the Ottomans take it, uh, <clears throat> and it's it's the end of the idea that uh, Constantinople and Byzantium is is the the greatest city and nation of christianity yeah. it's the end of the the idea of rome this is where rome ends basically yeah because exactly. constantinople was the second rome and i i really like how it's set up where you can see that that it is it is the end of of, of a great era and an end of so many things for both vampires and, and mortals i think they've done a really good job here um it's set up to be very emotional, very thought-provoking, philosophical, and I think it requires character, uh, players to have created characters who, rather than go along with what's going on, are also willing to think about what's going on and, and sort of try to figure out what does all this mean. Um, so it's it's not just an easy plug-and-play scenario, this, this last one. I think it's one that... that 
it, it, it requires something of the players and of the game master. But if you can get that going, I think you can get a lot out of it. Yeah, exactly. You, or at least it's you, you're going to get a lot more out of it if, if you have players and characters who are actually invested in it. It, it is a really cool kind of like action scenario. Otherwise, with... with the players having to navigate uh, sometimes a burning city, and you have these mobs of of not only invading crusaders but religious fanatics inside. Yeah, uh, and of course you have the very mortal conflict be- between the Greeks and the Greeks being the Byzantine and the Latins being basically everyone else, uh, or mostly the the what we would call Italian uh yeah people uh, which is one of the reasons why venice was involved but but basically anyone who was a foreigner could be considered a latin so you you have you have the conflict there that that okay we need to get from here to there but oh holy fuck there's a there's a mob uh and i'm i'm, I'm for some reason I, I just thought of the the scene in um the good the bad and the ugly where where um Blondie and Tuco are disguised as Confederate soldiers, and they see other soldiers in the distance, and like, okay, are the Union soldiers or Confederate soldiers? And no, they're they're wearing gray. Cool, we we can keep our uniforms and be like, yeah, go Confederacy. And then when the other soldiers uh, approach them, they realize that they're Union soldiers, but they're covered in dust, so that's why they look gray and they get captured. So you could have you could have scenes like that, like, oh, okay, look, yeah. we're we're seeing people carrying crusader flags cool we can act as crusaders and no they're carrying crusaders flags as trophies because they just killed and dismembered oh, a bunch of crusader yeah. <laughs> holy fuck what do we do now so so yeah it, it is a really action-packed scenario that could and should also uh include a lot of uh kind of hor- uh, horrifying elements and and stressful elements um because it's yeah it, it's it's a really intense situation uh and and you do get a lot of um these almost backstabbing moments because one of the plot threads is that at uh, Micah's uh, our dear old friend or Vicos sorry Micah Vicos yeah. our dear old friend he's uh he's plotting against his grandsire uh and 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 it kind of got me got me thinking that there's this Two out of three scenarios in this campaign are, are Timichi related, so it's it's kind of like the mini uh, Timichi chronicles in a way because it's a lot of it is centered around them, uh, yeah. and it also shows that how incredibly backstabby and intriguing uh, the Timichi can be. Um, and I was just thinking that the Sombra are are called the the keepers, as in my brother's keeper. Uh, yeah. But in a way, I'm, I'm thinking that it's it shouldn't it be the Tsmish that have that nickname, considering just at least in this scenario they're really backstabbing. Kind of everyone is out to get each other, and yeah. and people that are saved by some people are later diablerized by the very same people. So uh, yeah, don't don't make friends with Tsmish. Is basically what I'm coming at. Uh, yeah, um, <clears throat> and we also get a, a nice amount of vampires and monasteries which is yeah. of course always nice yeah, uh, one thing that i <laughs> no go ahead one dude. thing that i completely forgot to mention is uh, this is the first book that i remember we've covered that had uh, multiple instances of page xx which was sort of nostalgic to see um oh, <clears throat> yeah sorry and you were... I, I didn't see that that's actually uh, um, there's 
there's cool. at least two places so uh, that oh, oh, uh, that's, that's nice. one for yeah. uh, for you old school fans yeah uh, but but yeah uh, but not only do we have google monks and and vampires in monastery uh, we also have uh, or we could have and we should have uh, crusaders fighting against the uh, the varangian guards because that's what happened yeah. in real life so again if if you want to throw back to to earlier perhaps one of the uh, character is a gangrel who in in mortal life was a, a, a varangian uh, or uh, so so they could have kind of like uh, uh, ties or connections or or feel some kind of loyalty to their to their um, northern king uh, kinsmen uh, so and and of course just just the image and and we talked about this in constantinople uh, ghoul viking varangians with two-handed axes is a thing yeah and you yeah, want just, them just to fight crusaders. That's, yes. that's a cool scene. Uh, that is that that has to happen. I mean, yeah. seriously. And and the real like, I would read up on on the siege and the sack of Constantinople because there was a lot of cool things that happened. Uh, one of the things that actually, uh, I don't know how big of a difference it made, but it was a part of it, was that uh, since you had a Venetian fleet with you, they could actually sail ships. Uh, up to to kind of like the, the seaside of of the city walls and land troops. Uh, I wouldn't really call it a naval assault, but it's they they kind of they, they use the troops to to land uh, or they, they use the ships to land troops close to the walls, which which is kind of cool in and of itself. So uh, so if you you if the characters aren't in the city already. You have a lot of, of really interesting and and cinematic ways of them getting into the city, uh, yeah. perhaps by like a um, ju- just a small assault uh, on the walls as a distraction, and they come sailing up with the rest of the Venetian fleet and uh, as a night attack. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a really uh, very very interesting and cinematic uh, situation. Everything that's happening. Um, and and you should take advantage of that while you definitely this scenario. Yeah. Um, so chapter four is NPCs, and they've really managed to avoid the previous tendency of making vastly overpowered NPCs. <laughs> Most of them seem pretty well balanced. I have a few characters I just want to touch upon. One is called Nerea of Spain, and as we have mentioned before, Spain does not exist. Yeah. She would have been called Nerea of Iberia or whatever con- uh, country on the peninsula she's from. Yeah. Just a, a minor thing. Uh, <clears throat> we also have some oddities among the Timish. We have a Timish uh, with a discipline spread of Auspex 2, Celerity 3, Potence 2, which is especially weird since his sire has neither Celerity nor Potence. Mm. Uh, that's a case of... of just creating a character to fit a specific role rather yeah. than, you know, actually considering what they should have. Yeah. Um, and then there's one who is only 40 years a vampire, but has managed to get all the way to Auspex 6. Uh, seems Ooh, a bit which, excessive. Which one is that? Uh, that's, Bod- that's actually Bodor Toth. Um, oh, yeah. <clears throat> and, and once again, it's it's because it, it has to fit with the story, but yeah. I'm like, yeah, couldn't, couldn't you find another way of... of getting that stuff in. Uh, but in general, I think they have some good NPCs that support the game. However, a lot of them are repeats from Constantinople by night, and I get it, they don't want to say that you need Constantinople yeah. by night to play this book, but I think they could have used that space better and just gone with saying, okay, 
in order to run this, you need the core book and you need Constantinople by night. I know that they thought that might scare some people away who didn't have money to spend on all of that. But at the same time, <clears throat> it, it annoys me that, that we have that um, that repetition. Uh, are there any NPCs you want to, to talk about? No, no, not really. I, I do like the fact that they included quite a few female characters in it. Uh, and Oh, yeah. Uh, so so that and and also we have uh on on page 90 we have dominic the fiendish messenger who is uh it's it's just a really cool picture it's it's uh it's it's a uh Timish who uh from the nose up looks really human but uh but from from the upper lip down he has this huge gaping unhinged jaw which i i like those it's it's really cool and it's it's very uh inhuman uh and and it just shows it like it's it if you want to show a character that's just going to be weird and creepy looking just give them an unhinged jaw and a huge mouth with lots yeah. of sharp teeth in it uh but but for the actual character themselves um yeah they they I, I like them. It, none of them really stood out to me like, oh, this is really good or really bad. Uh, I, I do like the, uh, the Venetian uh, Nosferatu, Niccolo. I kind of, he, he felt a bit sympathetic and, and interesting. And, and <laughs> like, he, he doesn't play a big part, but he can be. And he can, it's one of those characters that, like, if, if you continue this campaign, then he can be really useful as an ally or as an enemy to the uh, to the player characters. Um, but but yeah, I, I liked it. There's uh, there's also uh, the description of Koban. Uh, the yeah. the portrait of him doesn't really make him justice, uh, but the description of him is just creepy. And again, Simichi are messed up. Uh, yeah, but, but yeah, all all in all, I it's um, I, I there like seems to be one of the uh, one of the NPCs seems to be Finnish actually. Yeah, or I'm thinking probably uh, Baltic, Estonian, or Latvian or something uh, because uh, she's a Tremere. Um, so and and but but yeah, the name uh, Manis and Mackie is is a Finnish name. Uh, there's actually a couple of of race car drivers I think are brothers with with that name. Uh, so I'm, I wonder if there was a, a, a brace car uh, fan in, in White Wolf Rotem, uh, but yeah, uh, she's uh, yeah, there, there is one, uh, but it I I'm, I would say Baltic, Estonian, or Latvian. Okay, uh, that that would make more sense considering uh, the the context and where where the Tremere are right now. But yeah, it could be Finnish. Okay, so we end with an appendix, appendix looking at uh, <clears throat> how to run this campaign and further ramifications. It's here that we see uh, that the second edition was already on the horizon, as they say that the fall of Constantinople is the end of the long night and the beginning of the War of Princes, which is the theme for the next edition of Dark Ages. Mm -hmm. The upcoming books will continue to move the timeline up from 1197 to 1230, uh, which is where the new edition is set. Most of the stuff here is really good advice. Like I mentioned previously, I would have preferred if they'd said that for the first scenario to work, you must make sure none of the characters are from Venice. But other than that, you know, solid advice on yeah. how to run and how to continue this chronicle. Uh, yeah, I lost you, Jacob. 
Oh, sorry. Uh, well, just basically, I said that um, uh, it's it's you know solid advice on how to run and continue this chronicle. So mm. uh, I don't know if you have any any other comments here. Uh, no, I I uh, I really liked it. The one of the things that I thought was really cool is that uh, they have a tie-in to uh, Vampire the Masquerade, the modern nights that you could you could play this uh, as a series of flashbacks. Mm, yeah, uh, yeah. Which is a really cool idea, uh, and uh, and and again, if if you if you have a modern chronicle and uh, and and you play this as flashbacks, then you can kind of uh, up the antis quite a bit because the the players knows that well none of what happens uh, in this in the flashbacks are really going to affect my modernite character so so players can be more bold in their choices and and go not necessarily over the top but they, they can kind of like um do do more exciting stuff like yeah it doesn't matter if my character mm. dies uh trying to defend uh, michael for example or, or just doing a last stand at the gates of constantinople as the hordes of crusaders uh rush in it's it's just going to be cool because I'm gonna go back to my regular modernite character after this, uh, so yeah, that, that's that's the really cool thing. Um, I also like that you have uh, kind of these, uh, if you want, like I don't know if you should call them random encounters, but but kind of ideas on things that could happen, uh, like like for example, uh, finding a bunch of of. Um, uh, Cappadocians uh, resting in 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 a crypt. So, like for example, I, I can imagine that your uh, Giovanni uh, character would be interested in that if if you <laughs> run across that. And and a lot of like this this little story uh, seeds basically that you can use uh, in in lots of fun ways. So yeah, it's it's uh, a, a good good ending chapter. Uh, that in some ways probably should be in the beginning. Um, so, <laughs> so, so again, advice for the storytellers: read the entire book, and, yeah, and not just definitely. like one chapter at a time. Um, yeah. So um, I, I didn't remember much of this book and, and being a player in the Chronicle and honestly rereading it, not much is coming back. So I can't comment on this uh, campaign how it how it runs, though I. I don't recall me thinking, well, that was a waste of time. Uh, I, I think we all had fun with it. Um, as a gaming book, well, I'm impressed. When we look at previous scenarios published for Dark Ages, this really feels like a step up. I could definitely see myself running this with really minimal changes, so thumbs up for me. Yeah, I I agree. Uh, I, I really liked it, and it's, it's one of those uh, rare... Um, stories that I would both love to to play as a as a player but also to run as a storyteller um, the, the the only problem that or it's it's not a problem with with the story it's a problem with me is that I I would be probably have some difficulties with difficulties with the pacing just trying to cram as as much of all of the cool ideas in this game into the actual gameplay um, so, but but again, that's that's just on me. Uh, but but yeah, I, I really liked the mo most of the things. I'm not gonna say everything because there's a few weird things. But but it's 
like it's intriguing if if this was would have been a movie trailer i would definitely have seen the movie in theaters yeah so historically speaking i think we've hit on the few inaccuracies but overall i love the look at one of the great tragedies of the middle ages where a huge center of civilization fell to its supposed allies proof that greed beats faith um the fourth crusade is definitely one of those historical events that make for an interesting backdrop i think they pulled it off pretty damn well and obviously you know as a a filthy socialist it's always (laughs) nice to be able to point back and say yeah even 800 years ago uh, capitalism was was wrecking the world, especially once it managed to pair up with organized religion. So uh, suck it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. From from a historical view, uh, and I, I touched upon this briefly. It, it shows how uh, how divided the the Christian world is. Uh, not 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 only uh, politically, but but religiously as well, because there there is a schism between the Eastern Church with the Patriarch in in Constantinople and the Pope in Rome and the Antipope in Avignon. Uh, And it it also kind of shows uh, some of the things to come, like you have this religious clash and because you're going to have the Cathars and the Albigensian crusade in a couple of decades. Uh, So, yeah, it, it it really paints a grim but realistic pictures of of just how horrifying um, not only war but especially the crusades are because if if you have uh, an army that knows that it doesn't really matter what i do since i'm doing it in the name of god i'm gonna have my sins forgiven forgiven as i'm doing it that opens up for a lot of potential war crime (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, <clears throat> in general, uh, thumbs up all around for this book. Uh, it's it's an interesting chronicle. Yeah. The next book is Iberia by Night, not Spain by Night. Iberia by Night. Um, <laughs> this this takes the timeline up to twelve twelve for reasons that are obvious if you know your medieval European history. So, Peter, any last comments before we sign off? Uh, no, not not really. I've I've said everything, and I'm. I'd be impressed if, if people are still listening by now, actually. It's, it's been a long episode. Well, uh, as usual, thanks to all our listeners and an extra big thanks to our patrons. Uh, and, and yeah, I'm, I'm just uh, hoping that everyone is, is fine and well and that uh, your uh, cold clears up as soon as possible, Jacob. Yeah, fingers crossed. Uh, I have to go to work tomorrow at time of recording, but uh, hopefully I can I can handle it. And so it is goodbye from me, Jacob. And from me, Peter. Farewell and see you next time. Bye.